I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you are seated in a worship service and communion is observed and you rush right by communion onto another topic and then out the door. Has that ever happened to you before? Likely it's happened a lot. Today is not one of those days. We return to the beautiful picture of communion to make certain that this incredible demonstration of worship has impacted our hearts and our lives as God himself has intended. I invite you back into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And a moment ago, we read those verses that encompasses what has been known throughout the church age as clear instructions for public communion in the church. Now we look more deeply into the context to better understand how communion, this very practice with which you and I have just joined together in worship, how this should truly impact our lives. I'd like to share with you five ways the Lord's Supper impacts us. Because I am really, really smart with the clock, I got to as many as three in the early service. So y'all just pray for me, if you will. That's about all I can ask. Uh, we trust that God will take us as far as he would desire us uh, in this incredible passage. We look at the full context beginning at verse 17, and I read there with you. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you as you come together. Okay. Pause for just a moment. This beautiful passage instructing communion has begun with a critical condition. In the lives of a church, specifically noted as the church in Corinth, Paul, led by God's hand, said, following this instruction, I do not praise you when you're coming together. Because coming together is not for the better, but for the worse. Now can you imagine Paul having the felt need to speak into a congregation these words. When you come together, there seems to be more problems then than when you are apart. It might be better that we discern how to resolve so that as we come together, our coming together will be better than our being apart. For this is what Christ has ordained. Can you imagine Paul writing something so dear and precious as how to partake of public communion but begins with, we have a problem. When you come together, there are issues on how you join your hearts to do communion. There are some significant, critical conditions, Paul would say. Paul then makes a comment in verse 18. For to begin with, when I hear that you come together, okay, so... Paul understands the church of Corinth is still coming together. 
But Paul addresses a critical need in their lives that has prohibited togetherness even though they come together. In the context of communion, Paul emphasized that you simply can't coexist. You must come together in the name of Christ. So the first impact communion has on us expresses togetherness. Paul emphasized you cannot undermine communion by coming together in your physicality, but not being together. And so he wrote, verse 18, to begin with, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe that verse 19, there must indeed be factions among you so that the approved among you may be recognized. Therefore, when you come together in one place, now Paul is there because twice in just two and a half verses, Paul does recognize, hey, Corinth Church, you are coming together. And I must say, Paul does confront them at what you and I might call a most untimely point of his conversation with them. He's giving instruction on the beautiful ordinance and and expression of communion, but begins by saying we need to correct the absence of true togetherness. Paul found it hard, difficult, to believe that this was even a problem with the church of Corinth. You know how we have proof of this? Because Paul said at the end of verse 18, in part, I believe this. Now, when you and I hear negative news about some, we likely just jump straight to the whole sum, don't we? Oh, well, I knew that person had it in them. We jump to the negative news. Paul was not so hasty. Paul receives word that there are problems with togetherness in the church of Corinth And Paul's initial thought is, I can hardly believe this. In fact, I really only want to believe this in part. But then as God does every single moment that we need correction, God speaks through Paul and addresses this critical condition in a very clear way. So the, the meaning of communion itself has social implications. Did you know this? The very meaning of communion indicates we come together. Therefore, Paul knew that they cannot come together with two problems that are named here, schisms and and factions. Paul said you can't come together that way, for that does not demonstrate true togetherness. So Paul had to confront this so that the true genuineness and oneness of worship around the person of Christ would be authentic and real. So notice how Paul describes the absence of togetherness. Paul begins by naming this critical problem in general. We see that in verse 17. I do not praise you as you come together. Interestingly enough, from verse 17, the term you becomes an inserted word for better readability in modern translations. The original Greek text does not have the insertion you. Therefore, the verse would be read, now in giving the following instructions, I do not praise when you come together. Paul has not pushed back his beloved brothers and sisters at the church of Corinth. 
He does not have animosity toward them. He has the deepest of love toward them. But he was very clear in saying on the front end of his instructions about communion, I cannot praise the way you come together. Why is Paul even considering praise being given to the Corinthian church? This began in verse 2. In verse 2 of the same chapter, Paul said, Hey, I praise you because you're remembering some of the truths that I've taught you. So early on, Paul said, way to go. You recall well those things I've taught you. But as Paul entered into conversation about how to better practice communion, Paul had to leave his complimentary exhortation, I praise you, and he had to go to the converse, I do not praise you in how you come together. So the, the general appraisal Paul gives of the problem is, I can't compliment, I can't agree with how you come together. Therein lies the general appraisal of the problem. Paul moves from the general appraisal in verse 17 now to the issue of this being a spiritual problem. Notice how Paul points to this as a spiritual problem. A lack of togetherness, Paul would say here, represents a woeful spiritual urgency and problem. Verse 18, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions... In part, I believe that. Verse 19, and there are factions. This represents the spiritual problem of the absence of true togetherness. The first term, divisions, comes from an old word transliterated from the Greek, schismata. What does that remind you of in our language? Schism. Paul wrote there are schisms. There are divisions. The word is a very blatant expression of there being a divide. There, there's a problem. There's a division. Now, Paul doesn't just at that word say, oh, then the enemy, enemy must have come in and stirred things up. No, Paul's just making an observation. There's a division. Sometimes you might sense a division with someone and simply say, we just need to uh, agree to disagree we say that a lot as caveats in our life paul here writes well there is a schemata there is a division but he doesn't stop there for if he did one might say well there are just two individuals or groups that just can't get along so paul moves on to something else no paul doesn't just move on after the word schemata paul wrote there are divisions among you and there must also be factions this comes from a totally different word. The word in the Greek is pronounced hieresis. If you think that is a strong translation for heresies, you are exactly right. The word translation expresses heresies, factions, sects, S-E-C-T-S. Now, Paul would say, we have a spiritual problem. Maybe not just with the schism. Agree to disagree. But now, the schisms have turned into the championing of false beliefs and negative expressions that increase the absence of spiritual togetherness. And so Paul said there are, there are factions here. Now, that becomes the spiritual assessment. First, the general assessment. I really can't praise you for coming together. 
the, the, the general assessment, now the spiritual assessment, where there are divisions that have turned into heretical factions. Paul doesn't stop there. He then gives a practical expression of the lack of togetherness. Paul wrote this beginning in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For in so doing, each one takes his own supper ahead of the other, and one person is hungry while another is drunk. Hold on, wait a minute. You might think, Pastor, what is Paul addressing here? People are gorging themselves with food while others are starving. People are, are bowing down to drunkenness while others have nothing. What could this be? The reference here in, in verse 20 to the Lord's Supper is a very general term that is different from where the Lord's Supper was expressed twice in verse 10 and already twice in, in chapter 10 and twice in chapter 11. So chapter 10 and 11 uses the phrase Lord's Supper or some equivalent thereof. But here is the only place where the phrase is very general, indicating what was very present in the early church, a love or a charity feast. The first century Christians who were Jews understood the Passover and understood that the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper demonstrated that which looked like the Passover. But those who were Gentiles actually did not build an equivalent of a communion with with Passover, they understood communion as an expression of God's love. And so the church would come together, even though knowing the history, they would come together and they would demonstrate these charity feasts. All would bring food together and there would be a phenomenal time of togetherness and provisions and food. But the whole purpose would be that the sacramental supper would follow, that communion would be the essence and the goal and the purpose and the drive for the togetherness. But something went sideways during the feast, during the charity supper. And that which went sideways was individuals who felt like they brought the most food to the table had priority over those who were poverty-stricken. In this church, there were those who were very affluent and there were those who did not even have their own home. So that when they came together for the love feast, those who had a lot and brought a lot felt like they had precedence over those who brought little or nothing. And so they were pushed aside. This was going on just before everyone sat down and celebrated communion. So Paul said to them in verse 22, Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? The poor don't. So those of you who have brought the most to the feast and are affluent and you're pushing to take most from the table, can you not do that at your own home? Because the purpose of this feast is the purpose of communion. We are here to recognize God's love in Christ for all of us equally. Paul then said this at the end of verse 22. This might be one of the strongest, if not the strongest indictment against any church ever in the history of the world. Do you look down and despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Paul said, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I can't. I can't praise you for this. This charity feast became such a prejudicial debacle that people were shamed while those who brought the most maintained and receiving the most. They became gluttons and drunkards right here in a church who just after this type of feast 
would celebrate the Eucharist. Communion. Paul said, no, this can't be. Togetherness becomes the powerful impact of communion as we we gather. A.W. Tozer. Y'all know the name. Beloved pastor and writer. Um, He wrote so many powerful truths for the church at such a young age. Published many books at such a young age. This is what he had to say about what we are receiving from God's Word now. A.W. Tozer asked, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, like that, 100 worshipers who have met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in their heart more nearer to each other than they could possibly be any other way. Looking away from ourselves to Christ tunes us in together to be one more than we could ever be in any other way. Communion breeds togetherness if communion is observed in the way that Christ deserves. Second impact, real quickly. You see, I'm really on that good timing train right now, aren't I? I'm, I'm seeing the clock. Impact number two. I have to laugh at myself. Impact number two. So Paul did this masterfully because the Holy Spirit was leading him. It was not of his own accord. I can imagine Paul was realizing, these are heavy words. Wow, where do I go from here? I can imagine being seated there, hearing Pastor Paul's words read to the congregation. I can imagine myself thinking, hey, can we go to the next topic? This is getting really uncomfortable. Can you read something else? Paul does. Verse 23. Paul said, I tell you what let's do now. Let's just find out what Jesus said. Let's find out what Jesus said. You know, when our older girls especially, but all of our daughters, when they kind of uh, disagree with their dad, I think maybe it happens once or twice a year. I don't know. I'm not keeping count. But when they disagree with their dad, there are times I feel, please don't tell them I said this, outmaneuvered. Has that ever happened to you? I really feel outmaneuvered. I'm like, wow, I'm not sure. I saw that one coming. But then I hear what I hope is the Holy Spirit and not my... uh, strategic manipulation, and I, and I hear this truth coming out. Okay, if that doesn't work, then I just got this to say. What would Jesus say to you right now? And I'm not kidding you. That becomes the great leveler. And I'm not giving you parental advice on the cuff here, but I am telling you, there becomes no greater level than, let's just ask Jesus. You're not agreeing with me. I'm not agreeing with you, my sweet little daughter. Let's just ask Jesus. So Paul has written these words and they're they're coming across, I imagine, as scathing and piercing. And then Paul, in verse 23, puts his parental arms, spiritually speaking, around the church of Corinth to say, hey, let's do this. If if you're not buying this, then come with me to the upper room. Just, Just come on. In your mind's eye, come with me. Let's go to the upper room some 20 years before this was written. And let's remember what Jesus said. Let's remember what he did. 
And so Paul wrote this, verse 23. For what I received from the Lord, that I passed on to you. Now these two phrases, received and passed, become in the passage amazing technical terms of apostolic transmission. We don't know how Paul received. Some say he heard from Luke, who was a traveling companion, because Luke's gospel bears the most resemblance with what we read here in, in 1 Corinthians. But I believe Paul is speaking about a personal message. Somehow through the Holy Spirit, God spoke to him, and Paul wrote with an emphatic I, which is why we know Paul's not just leaning upon what someone else has said. And Paul wrote in verse 23, For what I have received from the Lord, I pass on to you that night that Jesus was betrayed. Notice how the story of the betrayal trailed right into the first century church to demonstrate that God delivered his son up and Jesus went willingly to the cross. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he, oh, look at verse 24. He gave thanks. The second impact of communion is thankfulness. Jesus gave thanks. Jesus, the one who had become the substitute, the one who would go to the garden and agonize, the one who would go to the cross, the one who would feel the Father leaving him and, and saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? That one who gave his entire body for you, he didn't just theoretically substitute himself for you. He did it as far as he could possibly go in, in any mind and with any limit, and he gave his entire body. And before he did this, he picked up the bread and he said, God, I thank you. The word thank you here comes from the Greek term eucharistos, which literally means thanking God for the goodness of his grace. Right in the middle of the word eucharistos, we find the word charis, meaning grace. Thankfulness becomes equivalent to recognizing God's grace. Jesus, the one that would sacrifice, held up the very announcement of his body being delivered. And he said, God, thank you. This was not some Jewish habitual rendering of a pre-Passover prayer. This was Jesus realizing the severity of the moment, realizing that a betrayer had already dipped his hand in the same bowl, realizing his disciples were going to flee for a moment. And Jesus picked up the, the symbol of agony and looked at his Father in the celestial throne room of heaven and said, thank you. You know why he did that? Because of grace. Because of grace. Because there was no other way. And even though Jesus was the sacrifice, he himself recognized there is no other way. The law could not do it. Man could not do it. The religious scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees could not manufacture the religious system to accomplish this. Only the grace of God in Christ would accomplish this. So Jesus said, God, thank you. You see, Jesus saw Jerusalem as sheep without a shepherd. He grieved for them. Jesus saw people grieving at Lazarus' tomb over the fact that they thought death had the last blow. Jesus grieved over that human condition. Jesus grieved over those who were, who were, who were lost and who were wayward. He grieved. And at this moment, knowing that all of the grief of the world would be laid on Him, He held up the symbol of His death and He tore it and He said, God, thank You. He gave thanks. The Eucharist. Viewing the communion should render in us a heart of thankfulness. A deep heart of thankfulness. 
you know, there are times that I, I feel a bit disgruntled. I don't want to shock you, but there are times I feel a little dis- Perhaps you do, maybe once or twice a year. Who's counting? Feel a little disgruntled. Sometimes in my moments of disgruntlement, I will attempt to achieve an answer to my own disgruntlement and will further exasperate the disgruntlement. But in those moments, sometimes, if I'll just be still long enough, I'll hear God's voice in my heart. Just saying, hey, I know you're disgruntled. But why aren't you thankful? Do I need to take you back to the upper room? Do I need to take you back to Calvary? You see, we think at times, I fear, that we feel being thankful for the cross is like a Sunday school answer. I'm thankful for the cross. No, being thankful for the cross is life. It becomes the core of our worship, the core of our prayer, the core of our relationships, the core of our study, the core of our sermons. Look at what Christ has done. Oh, my. Thankfulness. Communion should breed thankfulness. I'll give you one more, and we'll run time with the 9 o'clock service. How about that? Togetherness, thankfulness, the final for this moment. Final impact communion has upon our lives. Remembrance. I enjoyed my time with the children a moment ago where we emphasized that, hey, we're called, to, we're called to remember. Remembrance. If time would allow, we could read from Hebrews chapter 10 where it is said of Jesus, he gave his body. There, there wasn't another veil installed. Jesus, Jesus became in his body, all that was needed to make a way for man to be in a right relationship with God. Jesus gave his body. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said something when he picked up the chalice. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do you understand the phrase new covenant? If you read Jeremiah 31, verse 31, you might. But the prophet announced that God, God will establish a new covenant with his people. He will write the law in their hearts. How's that for grace? He will redeem them, not of any works on their own, but totally on His grace. That becomes the new, the new covenant. And as with any covenant, we are to remember. We remember the covenant. Covenants are meant to remember. My wife and I are celebrating an anniversary this week, and I assure you, covenants are meant to remember i had better remember fool me once (laughs) fool me once not again and now i set my calendar reminder on my on my computer to like a week and a half before (laughs) not the morning of don't ever do that again why because covenants are meant to remember and to celebrate Did you know that because communion represents a social issue in the church, that we are called together for celebration and theology? You would not want celebration without theology because then celebration becomes this empty, misdirected zeal that goes nowhere and fades as soon as you walk out the door. You wouldn't want theology without celebration because then you have cold 
and indifferent religion. And who wants that? God certainly does not. We are called to, to have celebration and theology. We are called to celebrate based on the truth. The truth is God, through Christ, has given us a new covenant. And we celebrate that covenant. We live it out. We remember. Our call to remember builds upon the fact that the new covenant was put in place when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He announced that completion with the chalice. And he, he fulfilled the completion when he said it is finished. The covenant calls us to remember. The phrase, do this, y'all recognize that, right? It's in the Bible. It's on our communion table. Do this. The word do expresses a present imperative for the grammarians in the room. Present imperative is the, it is the ultimate command. Present imperative. Do this now. If it were perfect, then you could do it now and it would just be fine for the rest of your life. No. Do this now. Remember now. Remember what he's done now. And as you remember, celebrate. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So, Togetherness, thankfulness, remembrance. This is how the meaning and message of the Lord's Supper should affect our lives. We don't worry about consubstantiation and transubstantiation. If you've never heard those terms, let those fly right over. But if you know those and wonder, hey, is this what we're doing? No, we are looking into the meaning of communion. And we are seeing the face of Christ in a summary of the gospel. What a great quote to close with in Charles Spurgeon who said this. Through communion, I can break right through the veil and fall into the arms of Jesus. I know you're tired. I know perhaps you're weary or confused, hurt. Of all that's going on in the world, I understand it. If we could rub two things together that have stayed the same, we would be glad, wouldn't we? So many things have changed. And I'm asking you to accept the message of the observance that we just celebrated and break through that veil that is no longer there and rest in the arms of Jesus. Just rest in his arms. He's your Savior. He died for you. He rose again for you. The veil is destroyed. There is no barrier. Rest in the arms of Jesus and remember what he's done. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the children. Most of all, thank you for allowing us to come to the table of our Lord to remember. Guide us from this place to live as people who remember what Christ has done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we say, I would like you to watch a couple of announcements after that. Conversation is on. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'd love to share some scripture with you so that we can nail that down in your life if you feel like God's leading your heart. However God has spoken to you, we want to have a conversation with you. If you need a time, we call it altar time, and that, that is always happening here as we dismiss. Um, but let's watch these announcements and be encouraged.